My name is Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast, the podcast where I get into all things diversity, equity and inclusion with luminary guests, a sprinkling of coaching, advice, guidance and the inspiration for you to do things differently in your organisation. If you want to create a luminary place to work, a luminary experience for your clients, your teams, your communities, If you are committed to overleaping compliance and heading straight for luminary approaches to DEI, you are in the right place. You are listening to the Being Luminary podcast, episode number 43. I would really love to hear a bit more about your origin story. I said origin story the other day and somebody said that makes me sound like a superhero and in some ways yes it does Um, but it'd be lovely to hear a bit about your origin story and also about some of the some of the kind of roles that that you have ended up doing. I know that's asking you to span a long period of time (laughs) but maybe you could cherry pick some things for us just so we could find out a bit more about you. Yeah, no, no problem. I, I start at the beginning and see where see where we end up uh, on this. And it, yes, it was a it's an interesting question, isn't it? Origin story. I like the sound. Uh, I like the sound of that. Um, super villains have origin stories as well as heroes. So we'll see where it ends up. And and you know when I when I first hear that question in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I start to think. I have no origin story uh, for this one. I am, I fit in in the mainstream in uh, as our country would define it in almost every um, characteristic uh, for that. And I am, for example, resolutely middle class uh, in how things are done. I'm a white middle aged man, although I wasn't always middle aged in my origin story uh, as well. So I, you know, there has to be a level of humility. Um, in that but but you can look at events in our in our childhood and see how they affect and although although I said I was resolutely middle class um, I was the son of a a single uh, primary teacher my mum brought my brother and I up um, during the 70s and 80s primary teachers did did not earn very much money uh, in those days my dad died when when I was eight and my brother was six and we experienced quite significant poverty in that regard until my mum was able to get back on her feet, get a job and do those. So I understand that. Uh, I understand that side of it uh, and you know, how you how you get by on that and what you don't have there. But also it, it's very interesting how class and, and money are not the same thing uh, as well. And we talk about intersectionality and the complexity of that. And that's quite an interesting one to explore. So as my my educational journey continued and you know being brought up by a teacher I did well academically um, as you would as you would expect um on that front and you know I had a good education and I got to go to Oxford which was which was huge. I went to a comprehensive school. I got to go there. That's a good experience of the difference between being an insider and an outsider uh, on that occasion but I I was always able to navigate those those sorts of things so that kind of that kind of worked for me. I then went into, uh, I spent many years as a management consultant. Um, it's it's interesting work, very intellectually stimulating, but you don't get to build much over that uh, over that journey. You're in and out of clients and uh, and so on. And I wanted to to build things, but I start. That's how I got into education work. I started training a lot of head teachers uh, way back in the days when there was a national college for school leadership uh, and um, the LPSH and other programs as well. Um, so that that was the start of the journey, and then I I did the world's 
most unusual career switch I think I went from management consultancy to the trade union uh, movement yeah I'm so interested in that transition very often um, there I led the NAHT the National Association of Head Teachers for seven years I started a couple of months after Michael Gove was appointed Secretary of State for Education so it was a tumultuous time uh, in education there and I love that uh, as well uh, but then after seven years I, I moved, I've been at Teach First for five years now Where do you position yourself? Where have you sort of felt insider or outsider? I do think this is a really interesting question. And I, I, first, I, come, I do a bit of work now and again with Big Education, the, the, the group. And I was actually invited to give a talk on influencing the system. Uh, and this was when I was in my union days. And, you know, I, I had access then. I could speak to a minister if I wanted to. If they wanted to test something out that was going on in education, I'd often get a call and um, we could work through stuff uh, like that. And I had 30,000 members that I could, you know, leverage that um, that power within the, within the system. And so I, I'd written some stuff around influence to do this. And one of the questions that came back when I was, was talking to the colleagues that really made me think, which was like, is everybody in a position to use those tactics that you've outlined here? Because so for one, of the, one of the tactics that I think is very powerful is if a minister has announced the decision and gone public with it, it is very hard to change that because it's embarrassing. And this is true of any, lead, any leader. You know, if your head teacher has publicly stated, this is the strategy that we are going to be following and you think, I don't want that to happen. That's quite an awkward position in and you're you're likely to get into a fight there if you're able to be in the room before the decision is made you're you've you've got so much more leverage at that sort of time but who's in the room and who isn't in the room uh, on that that's insider outsider power uh, as well and so I started to think that or reflect on this I'm sure other people have done it far more than me that there is this insider power and there's outsider power within the system. And there are two models of that. And if you are an insider, then, you know, things like uh, being involved early, being constructive, being discreet, um, being someone that you can, that they can rely on, they'll come to you for advice. How should I do this sort of stuff? Those are, those are powerful strategies. And I've used them when, when I've been an insider uh, as well, but they're not available for everybody, are they? And I, I started getting quite interested in Saul Alinsky, uh, those sorts of of strategies where you can see a a sort of an outsider strategy. If you're an outsider, you've sort of got a triangle of actors in any system. You've got the people in power, you've got yourself, and then you've got the big mass of public opinion, which is usually sleeping, it's quiet, it's not interested, everyone's getting on with their lives. And your job as an outsider is to mobilise the third party because you don't have power over over them. They do, but then they don't usually use it. So that you can see, like, as we're, we're looking at sort of Extinction Rebellion, closing the M25, those throwing soup over paintings and stuff. And it's, it's easy to get very irritated with that side of it, particularly I was sat in the M25 for a good hour uh, the, the other day. But you, what they're doing is they're, they're waking up the, the sort of sleeping giant and and, and will use them and... and so I started to think that, that there is a, there's different forms of influence depending on whether you're inside and outside. But one of the most 
important things to do is to figure out which one you are as well. And that's not as simple as it looks because we are all insiders and outsiders in different parts of our lives. And so, you know, those Extinction Rebellion activists, they're outsiders to the current power structure, but inside their movement, they are insiders. And if they apply the same tactics uh, that they would to embarrass the government to say embarrass their colleague activists, they, they will find that they lose their influence as well. And I, I, I think I, I think and I hope that we're all a bit of both in different parts of our lives, although obviously some of us are insiders in much more useful environments or bigger, bigger scenes as well. And that's where the equity bit comes in. So I, I do I do think being sort of us people think thinking through different forms of influence, understanding where we come from. And then you you've just raised that really interesting question about the people who skirt the boundaries between those as well, those those liminal people who not, neither want to be insiders nor outsiders as well. Um, and I don't have a good answer on that one. I have, that's just something to think about as well. It's fascinating. So um, you moved on to Teach First and tell me about that transition because I, I, I locate Teach First very much in this sort of engaged in this diversity, equity, inclusion world because of the values, because of you know, the, the way that the organisation positions itself. T- tell me about that transition. So I have a joke uh, about my, my career that when I was a management consultant, my job was to make change happen, whether it was needed or not. Uh, and that when I was a trade union uh, worker, my job was to stop change from happening, whether it was needed or not. And I felt the time had come to go to a place where we made the changes that were needed to happen um, on that on that front. Um, and, you know, with the best will in the world, a large part of a union's job is to stop things from happening bad things from happening and we need people who are willing to do that and we should be very grateful for it but it's not necessarily in its outward facing aspects a proactive role to build stuff um and that's why i felt like it was uh, it was time to move move on and teach first is in a is in a fascinating position it's it's a large organization uh now training you know this year we recruited just a shade under 1400 teachers to join the program for two years so we have about 3000 teachers training we're working with 5,000 early career teachers and about a a couple of thousand middle and senior senior leaders um, within the system so there's a lot going on there so it's an interesting management challenge of systems and operations and so which I find it I find interesting but it wasn't a government agency we have contracts with the government we're quite constricted um, in that they pay us to do our work and, and you know you You've got to be got to be careful uh, uh, on that front. But there's a level of autonomy. There's some al- alternative funding mechanisms, and it is driven by an underlying equality issue, which is about the fact that income drives education outcomes far more than it should. And obviously, every there's individuals that break it, and there are schools definitely that break that that cycle. But you look at any any sort of set of national level data. And your parents' income and class and background can drive your educational outcomes more than the, the sort of the talent and potential that you have in there. And that that strikes me as a really shaky foundation for a country um, to have. And that actually, if you look at some of the big intractable problems we face as a country, I think you can root some of them. Yes, yeah, some of them are just due to, to 
bad budgets and, and those sorts of things. Uh, uh, but some of them you can root to the sort of fundamental inequalities that exist from, from childhood and before childhood um, onwards. And so, you know, we won't be a high growth, prosperous economy if you want to go down the economic route unless we educate every young person. You know, we can't afford to have a, a system where, we, where grammars and privates cream off a, a small group of people to educate them and, and others don't. Where everyone needs those skills now. And if we invested in education, we would get a high growth economy. But equally, you've, you've also got this sort of sense of a bit of a malaise in, in the Western democracies. We've just seen the midterm elections in the US, which were much more positive than I I feared, actually. But equally so, there's still just big sort of waves of dissatisfaction and alienation for all sorts of reasons with the countries that we have built, um, despite technological progress and despite, relative to other parts of the world, prosperity as well. And I think it's because not everybody gets a share in that. Um, and that, that when you see growth that, that you don't get to take part in, and when you see prosperity and you see the technology gains, and all you're left with thinking is like, well, that's more just likely to make me unemployed or uh, make other people richer, you get this sense of like, well, why would I sacrifice? Why would I participate? Why would I vote? Um, why would I, you know, compromise with this system? What's in it for me? I might as well break it. Because uh, well, who knows what will come next, but it can't be any worse than what I've got. And I, I you know, I'd like to send a, a shot across the bowels. I think to a degree, that's why you get things like Brexit and Trump and, and other things, which is like, if we want sort of liberal democracy and a free market economy and social democracy and so on, these things have to work for everybody. Uh, they, they have to give everybody a reason to be part of it. They have to live up to their own rhetoric in a way. And I don't think they have. And I think that's because we're not investing in the education of every young person. And so, so for Teach First, it, that was generated by, by sort of income and uh, disadvantage. And in, in recent years, it's also been, been clear to us, as it was to many long before that, that, that there are other barriers within this. There's a whole range of sets of barriers there. There are many things that are blocking young people from from achieving what they should and and enjoying their childhoods and their and their school school days from there uh, and you know most recently we we have seen the the issue of race in education and those those barriers which again would would be, a, be very aware to many people long before that as well um and you know at teach us we, we need to be clear we are our founding mission is about income inequalities and their impact on we cannot disentangle them from some of the other challenges. And we don't need to disentangle them either. There are many strategies that we can build that will work for everyone who's not fully represented in the system uh, as well, I think. And it's dangerous to try and set groups of underrepresented people against each other, which you sometimes see uh, as well. There are, there are strategies that can work for everybody. So as a CEO, where would you say your hiding places are in this massive field of diversity, equity, inclusion? Do you have any areas that you think, oh, I really I feel awkward about talking about this or I or I need to know more about this or I'm I'm, I'm kind of actively educating myself in, in this or that particular characteristic or conversation? I feel awkward about most of it talking about it, I have to say, uh, for that one. Um, I, you know, the, the 
potential for giving offence or for ignorance um, or yeah, for being ignorant, I think, is, is real in almost every area. Uh, I, I've got to the point where it's like, well, tough. Uh, for that, you know, you've got to take that. That's that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to take it on the on the chin for that one. So I hope it doesn't stop me from engaging. But uh, and actually feeling a certain sense of awkwardness is quite appropriate, given what you've just said um, there as well. It's uh, it should be hard. It should be daunting. Uh, I I think the the area of um, trans rights uh, and so on is something that I'm really trying to understand more of. Uh, it affects it, the. It affects my personal family life uh, and so on and there are you know some really hard debates going on there with some some real anger building up on on various different sides as well finding a way to to navigate that while making sure that we do stand up for the group of people who are most likely to be victims in this, this situation which i think is clear uh, as well that's something that I've, I've got to do a lot of learning and thinking about Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.